Hello, and welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss the future of the beauty and wellness industries with the people who know them best. I'm your host, Priya Rao, beauty editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Katya Beauchamp, the co-founder and CEO of Birchbox. In this episode, we talk to Katya about reestablishing Birchbox's position of being for the every beauty consumer, its recent partnership with Walgreens, and its plans for international expansion. Hope you enjoy the episode. Today on the Glossy Beauty Podcast, we have Katya Beauchamp, the CEO and founder of Birchbox. Welcome, Katya. Thank you. So, Katya, um, walk us through the early days of Birchbox, way back in 2010. Yeah, so 2009 is when we came up with the idea. And really, we didn't intend initially to start a company. We saw this opportunity in beauty, and we just got super excited and started going after it. And what we saw was something really simple, which was... Um, basically beauty not being sold on the internet and it being almost 2010 at the time and it was less than 3% of sales and we knew that content for beauty was starting to really soar and so people were spending more time there and so we thought this is interesting I wonder why people aren't yet buying beauty online and it wasn't just that the penetration was low it was that there was no signs that the penetration was going to change anytime soon no early indicators of change so we asked ourselves the question as consumers, obviously, and also as business school students. And we came up with two reasons, which was basically that the internet made it very challenging to really buy beauty because for for number one, the internet um, made the problem of the amount of choice in beauty worse. So this idea that we felt as consumers was there was so much to learn about beauty. There was always new product. There was always new innovation. And it was enough in general, even in a store where there's twenty to 100,000 SKUs on a floor. But that is finite. And the internet makes it infinite. Right? And so that was problem number one. Problem number two in the internet is that it's 2D. And beauty is sensorial. You know, you consumers expect to touch and smell and play. Even um, everybody, whether they were engaged or not in beauty, would tell us, I would not buy particularly prestige beauty unless I tried it. When you think about how department stores or even places like Sephora and Ulta, what they've traded on is that try before you buy, being mm. able to play with product. Right. So how did you get people originally to even consider this concept when they were so used to trying 17 lipsticks in a store before they bought one? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, most people and the thing that we related to wasn't as much of this experience of trying 17 lipsticks in a department store as the decision not to. It was a decision that, like, we didn't want to be in those environments. We weren't excited to see, you know, 34 shades of blush. We weren't—that wasn't an experience that felt great to us. So instead, the thing that really was resonating with us as consumers and with a lot of people we talked to was people were doing nothing, right? So people were just staying with the same beauty routine since they were 13 or 20 and they had spent decades with the same stuff because they were like, no, 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 I am certainly not going to take the time to go and swatch 17 things. So for us, it felt really obvious that this idea of taking um, 
all of the onus that you have as a consumer to decide to change your behavior and say, you know what, we'll do it. We'll do the work. And instead of you having to go and seek this, we will push it to you in a really bite-sized way, in a way that feels totally doable. So instead of 17 lipsticks, in one month, you'll see five products only. It's almost like one product a week. You could decide yes or no, instead of what we felt like was a really bad question of, may I help you? What would you like to see? I mean, with 20,000 to 100,000 things on the floor, that feels to me and to a lot of people like kind of a ridiculous question. So we thought we thought we would value somebody taking care of this for us. But to your point, everybody in the beauty industry and every investor said that this would never happen because consumers were used to these alternative ways of trial. And most importantly, consumers would never pay for samples because they had been trained that samples were free. That's what everybody told us in the early days. But frankly, we just disagreed. We were like, well, we would pay. We're not dumb. You know, we represent some segment of the market. Um, and sure, we wouldn't pay a ton, but there is a some tolerance of payment here that feels pretty ROI positive to get to change your behavior without all the work of what it, we perceived as what it would take to change our behavior without wasting a ton of time or wasting a ton of money. We would pay money to be able to try and then feel so confident about a purchase and use it. You know, like hit the pan, get to the bottom of the jar, like squeeze the last pump. I mean, how good would it feel to us? And I think as consumers, it's so natural to say we all want to feel smart when we buy. And nothing feels better than being like, I bought it and I still want it. And I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it to the end. So when you think about that today, Katya, you know, nine years later, you know, the beauty market has really changed. Social media has really been responsible for a lot of that. And there's even more choice. Oh, yes. But at the same time, you see players like Target or Walmart, and they're really investing in beauty in a way that they never have before. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like that consumer, that everyday consumer, still exists? I mean, is she getting smarter? Is she oh, getting it's better new at the definition. process? I, d I definitely hear what you're getting at. And I think what you're saying is that even that consumer is more informed than ever. Absolutely. Totally agree. Um, but there is still a consumer that's driven by purpose and not passion. And I still believe that the industry is very, very laser focused on the obsessed. Even in the mass channels, it's natural, right? Because everyone's talking about the internet and these influencers. And it looks like, you know, the thing that's happening online um, when it comes to beauty. But again, that consumer and that the person who's attracted to that is someone who's really excited about beauty, where it's a pastime, where they want to learn all of these things. And it's taking a lot of the airspace and the oxygen, but I don't think it represents the majority of how people relate to beauty. So I still believe that this idea that these other channels are getting more engaged in the category, the lens that they're putting on is of a customer who's like, oh my gosh, how exciting that there's more. And again, I don't think that's how everyone relates. I don't think everyone's like, oh, I'm so excited to walk into a store and just see more. I don't think that's, um, you know, what everyone values. 
When you think about how you have to position yourself, especially on social, mm -hmm. how do you talk to that customer? Because, you know, so much of social today, especially Instagram and YouTube, is about, you know, that very contoured, very, you know, yeah. glam looks that yeah. certain social media stars have purveyed. And I don't think that's what you're saying your customer is. No, it's it's definitely not. We're really um, we're really a company that believes that uh, there's a large group of people who want to look like themselves and are not seeking transformation. And we like it. We like the way you look um, and we want to celebrate that. So, you know, it, it's it's been a challenge to kind of find the right way to talk about being a beauty company that's not obsessed with beauty, but is obsessed with humans and believing that because you are um, a person of value, you deserve to get joy when you spend discretionary dollars. We believe it's great in these moments that you have, the few we have where we you know, can't touch our phone because we're washing our hands or our face, you know, doing things like take a moment and enjoy it. Like smell the hand soap, you know, when you're washing your hair, you know, actually feel what's happening and, and just take the moments you have instead of um, what I think a lot of people are doing is saying like an hour a day of meditation would be great. Yes, it would. But, you know, that's has hard, that? right? So we're really trying to insert ourselves into the moments you do have um, and taking, you know, opportunities with different partnerships to to try out whether that can resonate with consumers and they can understand our intent. So, Katya, walk us back a little bit. I know that, you know, after Birchbox first launched, you know, it was, you know, the thing to be talked about in beauty. And you obviously had many companies that kind of came aboard and wanted to mimic what you were doing, whether it was Sephora or, you know, Ipsy or even Mimi Box. So that space got crowded very quickly. Mm -hmm. How are you able to kind of still compete in that piece of the business yeah. um, and show that, you know, what you're doing is very different from what they're doing? It's a great question, and we think about it all the time um, because, obviously, if you just look at boxes that have samples in them, you can see that you can look and say, oh, these are similar, right? This is the same thing. I think what we when in the early days when this started, it was scary, naturally, when people started to just come straight into the territory. But we started to feel confident about it pretty fast because of two reasons. One, it's it's a hard business. You know, it's it's complicated um, because you kind of sit in the middle between consumers and brands, and it's really about creating value for both stakeholders and creating long-term value. But the, the second thing is that we have so much focus around this different consumer. So the intent behind everything we do is um, for a different consumer, for sure. So there's definitely no confusion that anybody else out there is ta is talking to a consumer who's obsessed and loves beauty. And we're really trying to go after a very different consumer. So I think that helped ground a lot of our thinking and where we would invest in the experience and things we wanted to change. So um, how you know important, for example, is personalization to our consumer um, versus, you know, like big product that from, you know, brands that you might already know and be excited to get. Um, so making decisions there to say like, okay, we're going to personalize and then deciding, oh, we're going to make it more complicated because we're going to personalize and we're going to allow you to choose something. And this idea of like, how do, how do we create value for the casual consumer has really led us to focus on that point of differentiation. But to your point, there's so many more options and we are really thinking and focused on it. You talked about the campaign that we launched um, to to 
show a different perspective in beauty and to really not talk about beauty, instead talk about your time in front of the mirror. Um, and with that, we also, in our boxes in June, we sent out, um, you know, a message that says, this is not a beauty box. Really also confusing <laughs> for people opening a box of beauty. And um, we're just trying to engage and show that, you know, this is our belief, um, which is that there's a segment of consumers out there, which is most of us, who have been kind of pushed into this one way of having a relationship with beauty or not, or you just do the same thing for decades and we think there's better and we want better and you deserve better. So having those conversations and being more overt about what we believe and who we think, you know, would benefit from our perspective has been what we're trying to do now. Reoccurring revenue and repeat customers gets talked about a lot for digitally native companies and e-commerce businesses. But, you know, another piece of it is that people say in the U.S. there is a subscription fatigue. Talk to us a little bit about that, that people are tired of getting, you know, multiple boxes <laughs> of multiple things monthly or quarterly or, you know, you name yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't know if there's data that substantiates that. I don't think, I think there's still such a huge opportunity in the U.S. for what we do. But I do think that subscription often gets kind of overly simplified as being like one thing. My opinion is that there's essentially three different ways of, subscription existing as a revenue model. It's not a business model. It's a revenue model. Um, and the first one is one that I think we're all really familiar with, which is replenishment, um, which is a totally different use case of why you would subscribe, right? Um, usually for something that could be seen as easier to commoditize and really useful. The second one is actually something that's existed forever, which is the subscription is to the thing you get. So um, sorry, what I mean by that is the subscription gets you like the wine of the month or the box of food, the groceries you're going to use, right? Um, or even the clothes that you're going to use versus the way that Birchbox works is the subscription is the appetizer, right? The subscription is supposed to be like um, a way of exciting you and helping generate demand. It isn't the transaction. The transaction is when you find the thing you love and you buy it. So I think that those are totally different use cases and that not every category can be in every use case. And beauty is a really interesting one, right, because samples are a big part of how people discover. Trial is a big part of it. And also there's a lot of margin dollars to be made from going from a sample to the full size. So it works differently as a business model and I think has so much runway from that perspective because it drives an ROI positive customer experience and it drives an ROI positive customer acquisition experience. So I, you know, I don't see it for that category, but I do understand in general if people, if consumers are like, oh, this is all the same thing, that it does mean a little bit of headwind, which means that companies like Birchbox, we need to think about new channels of having this conversation with consumers, which is what we're doing. So, Katya, I know that this is a little bit outside of the box, but, you know, one thing that I've heard is that Birchbox is incredibly successful in the UK and continues to be. And we've seen other imitators or, or people who have mimicked your model, whether it's a Stitch Fix or a FabFitFun, recently go there. What is happening in the UK that kind of really is driving that when the US seems to be a little bit like a little bit colder or lukewarm on the concept? 
I think newer, you know, potentially it's newer for customers there is obviously interesting. Um, the UK actually had some interesting subscription businesses we looked at in the very early days. So, so that market has had um, something that was called like the Crave Box. Do you remember? It was such an early days. It was a snack subscription, very successful that then actually went from the UK to the US. Um I don't know if there's much more to say other than, you know, these things coming to the UK. There's a customer that's been wanting them for a while. Um, it is a great market. We see Europe as a great market for this. But again, I think that the point is that subscription isn't the solution to everything. You know, when we started Birchbox, we didn't say, how do we get people to subscribe to samples? Subscription was actually the best way to get consumers the experience of discovery at a low price, at a cadence that felt manageable. It was a solution to what we identified as a problem, which is it's hard to change your behavior. It's a lot of work. It's expensive. You waste time. You waste money. Oh, well, here's a way, right? And I think when that's the case, when you're leveraging a subscription to improve the customer experience, then, you know, there's 100% of market for it when you're trying to kind of push people into subscription for something that, you know, isn't ultimately an improvement. It just feels like a huge commitment to things that you didn't know you wanted a commitment to. I think that is a bigger challenge. And I don't think that's going to be different in any market. Talk to us a little bit about Walgreens. Why did you feel like that was the right partner for you and also this concept of shop and shops in their stores? Sure. So when we met with the Walgreens team now a couple years ago, um, we didn't know exactly what we would talk about, frankly, and what we what the potential was. But we started talking about our passion for the everyday consumer, the casual consumer, and feeling like there was just a massive opportunity to be a very big business just by winning that consumer because it, that consumer is in play, loyal to no one, you know, really not loyal to this category yet. Um, and they got really excited about it too. They they felt very inspired by the opportunity and it resonated with what they wanted to be in the market um, more for an everyday consumer and gave them clarity that that was something that was very in line with who they could be. Um, we also just had so much passion for our customers. We talked a lot about how can we show consumers you care in these little touch points because saying it is not, you know, doesn't really matter. Um, so there was just so much excitement about having these shared values and then that this consumer was an opportunity that really made sense for both of our companies and all, obviously that we just had very different skill sets to go after the consumer. And ultimately, this consumer represents 70% of the market. It's 100% clear that the purchasing and the transactions will be online and offline. And how great if we can build the channel faster together. That's what happened. Um, so we said, let's test it. And the idea for the test was to do a few different things. One was to create a store-in-store -store experience where you could purchase the full-size product, where you could build your own birch box, where you could subscribe, take over, you know, a meaningful piece of square footage. In, in some of the stores, it's 1,000 square feet, so it's 400 to 1,000 square feet. We also wanted to test much smaller expressions. So we're rolling out in 3,000 stores just the ability to subscribe with a beauty consultant from a tablet. So no build-out somebody who can talk to you about what Birchbox is, you know, who we're for, how this would work, and you can subscribe there. And, you know, there's more things that we want to test kind of in the spectrum of 
very lightweight. What happens? What's the experience of getting someone to subscribe in a store to fully integrated Birchbox is here. The merchandise is here. Now you can build a basket where you can have prestige and mass in one space. When you think about how you invested in that, and one piece of it was obviously the beauty consultant piece, Mm -hmm. which is not something that you necessarily see in mass stores. How important was that to explain to the customer what this was, what this was about, and how they could be a part of it? It's everything. So we've had, um, you know, we've done a ton of pop-ups. We've had our own stores. And the one thing that is the biggest takeaway is that the people in the store are the only thing that matters, basically. Their excitement for the mission, vision for the customer makes all the difference and nothing else matters. And one of the reasons, again, that Walgreens was such a great partner was they had over 3,000 of these people already in stores, right, that were, you know, excited about what they were doing. But also when we started to talk to the subgroup of them in our stores, we're so excited about this angle of the everyday consumer, how to rethink what it would look like to serve that consumer, to give them really great customer service. If they weren't someone who loved beauty, they were so excited about that too. And it has, it has been all of our energy. I mean, obviously we focused on the design and the merch and all of that, but we have spent by far the majority of energy talking about, you know, this customer and thinking about how to get the people who are going to talk to them excited, you know, how to make them feel motivated, how to make them feel a part of this mission and vision, and how to make them feel like, you know, they can come to us and help iterate on what's going to work for that customer. When you think about scaling that, which I know that you guys are going into more stores, five, I believe, in August, um, how much more difficult does that get? You know, obviously more stores, more associates. It's, you know, obviously that is what everyone keeps telling me is more difficult. But in my opinion, the only way to win right now is figuring out how to scale the unscalable. And I do not think it is an impossibility. I think there is perfect synergy for all of us to think about how we can change the paradigm of a sales associate's connection to their work. I think like giving people more purpose and connection to what they're doing is it's the right thing to do. It's an exciting thing to do. And it certainly has the opportunity to be very ROI positive to not have, you know, the need to always change out who's working in stores. So I think it is hard. It's different. It's a very different approach. But I think it's surmountable and that it makes sense for from a business perspective, but also from a like, why wouldn't we want to live in a world where people at every you know place of work loved what they did and felt more connected to it and felt like they were a part of something meaningful to them? They were excited to go to work for that. So I think it makes a ton of sense to figure it out. When you think about how many doors Walgreens has here in the U.S. and then obviously in the U.K. with Boots. So many. What's the plan going forward? What can you share with us? The plan is big, um, but the you know what that means in terms of the manifestation is what we're still learning. So the ambition is to create a massive channel, given that you know this is the opportunity is to serve at least seventy percent of the market, and obviously Walgreens already touches almost every consumer in the U.S. and Boots touches almost every consumer in the U.K. There's so much opportunity, but we want to make sure that we understand the different ways that we could manifest ourselves in a store that would work for the customer. It doesn't always have to be, we don't think, a full build-out experience. It could be something much more about, you know, you can access everything and it can be delivered here within one day. Um, So we're testing all different versions of 
what this could look like, but we're thinking very scaled. So is Boots on the horizon specifically in the UK, just with their revamp of the beauty store? (laughs) Boots is definitely a conversation, not something that we can yet share any details about, but it's exciting that we're both in those markets. And again, there's both in that market, we have different core competencies. So Katya, I guess lastly, when you think about, you know, what other, you know, digitally native companies are doing in, in, in stores, whether it's a Quip or a Harry's, you know, they've been very focused on, you know, maybe buying something in the store and then getting them to replenish on their site mm-hmm. or some version of that. How are you doing that kind of drive back to each other? And what do you think is going to be the larger segment of the business? Is it going to be retail or is it going to be e-com? Uh, great question. I think so. We are selling subscriptions in stores, so it's very similar in that sense, where you can get your first box in the store, um, and then the future boxes will come to you as they would normally. Um, we're seeing a, a lot of engagement right now from new customers who are coming to the store and buying, you know, the full size products in, in the stores where that's what we've done. Um, and we're also seeing those customers have a digital experience too. So all in all, you know, it's pretty textbook in what we all know, which is there's this expansion of lifetime revenue happening from being multi-channel. Um, our thinking and what we're talking about a lot is how could we make it more seamless through loyalty type of integrations um, so that our customers can have a shared experience, but all things that we're working on. Okay. Last, last question, Katya. Um, You know, a couple of years ago, you know, Birchbox was potentially for sale. Would it be again? Are you thinking about that at all? Not thinking about that at all right now. Um, It's Obviously, my job is always to be thinking about like what's next for the company, what is the liquidation opportunity for my um, investors, but it's not something that I'm actively, no. Perfect. Thank you so much, Katya. It was great having you. Thank you. Thank you. 